it rained three times today for a grand total of about an hour. Yeah. And you were caught in all three rain showers. All three bits of rain. It was glorious. 15 minutes from home after a near two hour walk. And I got drenched. I, I don't I don't know other, any other way of describing it. <laughs> <laughs> like, so wet, there was a line on my jeans. Yeah. Front and back. Front and back. Front and back. Um, yeah, my coat was wet through. There was a puddle in my front pockets. It was just... <laughs> it was awful. And it soaked into my pockets. In my pockets. <clears throat> and I think what, what made it, like, 90 times worse, at least... Was my coat has like a part? It's a parka, so it has like a fur hood, and the fur around the hood looked like a drowned rat. So it's just <laughs> like just adding insult to injury there. Hey up! I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with this story. Hmm. Starts in the Georgian era. Oh, when our house was built. Yes. Because on Christmas Eve, 1777... I know, we really timed this terribly, terribly badly. We were so much better this time last year because we had all, like, themed episodes. We did, and it worked really well. Yeah, this year we moved and it all went peak-tongued. The fact that we're still producing episodes is amazing. But on Christmas Eve, 1777... What are you doing to my skull? (laughs) No, I caught the mic and I nearly knocked my brew over. We're off to a strong start. <laughs> 1777. George Wombwell. What a horrible name. And it is spelt womb as in W-O-M-B, oh, well. That's a horrible name. Sorry to all the Wombwells out there, but that is a vile name. He was born in a little village in Essex called Wendon Lofts. Mm. Which is an unusual name for a village. It is. It's around 50 miles east of London. Oh, it's within the commuter belt, then? Oh, it's it's deep within the commuter. It's in the commuter grundle. Okay. Yeah. Almost nothing is known about George's childhood, as he did not come from privilege. (laughs) I he did not have one. (laughs) Which is probably also true. That's the thing about the womb wells. They emerge from the womb fully formed. Fully formed stash and top hat. Oh, but he wouldn't have had one, obviously. No, he's, told me we're, he we're talking flat capper here. Oh, poor George Wombwell. However, what we do know mm. is that at some point he was taught to make shoes. Possibly right. as part of a family business. Possibly he was, you it's know... a hobby? I don't think it would have been a hobby. I wouldn't, know. they would have needed money. Mm. Unfortunately, though, mm. there obviously wasn't enough work to go around in Wendon Lofts. You're looking at about 500 people. so mm. It sounds small. Mm. Because at the turn of the century, mm-hmm. in the year 1800, George Wombwell moved to London to make his fortune as... Dick Whittington? A cordwainer. No, I don't know what that is. Ah, neither do I. I may have mispronounced it as well. <laughs> Your mispronunciations <coughs> are legendary. But Coxwain. <laughs> due to the London... <laughs> Oh, no. Uh, Coxon. Go on. Due to the London Guild system, Mm. there had historically been a difference between people who made shoes, cordwainers, and people who repaired shoes. Cobblers. Cobblers. In fact, as early as 1395, which is a full two years before Dick Whittington started his first term, the then Lord Mayor of London, a man called Sir William Moore, forbade cobblers from working with any new leather... And similarly, banned cordwainers from trying to repair any used shoes. So it was a criminal offence if you were registered as a cobbler to make a new shoe. And I, underst- vice versa. I understand that, but if you had a pair of shoes and everything was decent apart from a bit that needed replacing, mm. I can see a downside of this clause. Yeah. You can't use any new leather. So no, you're not allowed you, to touch the new leather. So you can't repair the shoe. You can you can repair the shoe, but you can't make a new shoe out of new leather. So you'd have to get lots of offcuts of old leather, I assume. Right, okay. You go into a cobbler's and there's just loads of old leather jackets. Yeah, just random <laughs> old leather jackets. Yeah. Saddles. <coughs> bits of bag. 
Tired-looking old horses. Tired-looking old horses. There's a lady cobbler's in Morecambe. There is. She's apparently very popular. She is very popular. It Literally above it, it says the lady cobbler. Yes, that's the business name. That is the business name. I think it's outstanding. Well, I love it. The, she took Marketing 101. She read the first chapter, which was Find Your USP. Mm-hmm. And she went, right, I don't need to read any more. I think I've got this covered now. My USP, I am a female lady. Mm. My USP, a vagina. Anyway... <laughs> Moving on. Let's get the sign made. Mm-hmm. George Woonwell, he opened a shop on Compton Street in Soho. Mm. This was an eclectic street. Mm. All shops. It contained, amongst other things, a watch and clockmakers, mm-hmm. a bookseller, a straw hat maker, because apparently... Don't they all kind of go together, though? I mean, whenever you go down to, like, like you know, like, really old cities, so we're talking, like... Chester, we're talking York, mm. you know, areas in London that are really like really old and really established. Aren't there always a cobbler's next to a watchmaker's next to a bookmaker makes next to a what a straw hat maker? No, not specifically a straw hat, but I was going to say, you know, a what do you call a hat maker? Milliner, a milliner, yes. Well, as well as the straw hat maker, there was also a surgeon. Okay, that's a bit left wing, but come on. An acusha, mm. a male midwife. Mm. No. Yep. There's a specific term for male midwives. Best midwife I ever had was a male midwife. I only said that to you just mm. a couple of weeks ago. Well, they've they've been around since at least Georgian times. Yeah. Uh, and undertakers, <laughs> a mathematical instrument maker. Right. A bedding warehouse. It wouldn't have been calculators. It's a bit early for that. A bedding warehouse. Yeah. Several grocers and two that were just listed as dealers in curiosities. Antique shops. Uh, no, curiosities. Curio shops. I think those were the ones I would have gone into immediately. Knickknackeries. Knickknackeries, They, should, they yes. should have been called, yeah. And two knickknackeries. Knickknackeries, yeah. George got to work making shoes for Twas His Trade. Mm-hmm. And for the next four years, he lived the quiet and respectable life of a skilled tradesman. Okay. He's doing okay. In Soho. Yeah, he's make, it didn't quite have the same reputation back then. Mm. He's making his money. He's able to, you know, afford a few of the finer things in life. Mm-hmm. But he's not... He's, he's just a guy at this mm-hmm. point. Then, in 1804, when he was visiting the docks for some unspecified reason... <laughs> Nobody knows. Right? I like to think best of him and think he was looking to import, you know, that imported top-notch leather from Italy. He was trying to get down there before <coughs> all the other shoemakers. I smell something and it smells bully. Does it? Mm. Well, whatever reason he was down there, he heard some alarmed shouts coming from the cargo hold of a ship. Right. The ship in question had just returned from South America. And at some point, when they'd been loading their cargo at the South American dock, they had inadvertently picked up two stowaways. Inadvertently, or are they slaves? They're definitely not slaves. They're definitely not slaves. Are you sure? Well, let me read the next paragraph and you tell me if they're slaves. Okay. Okay. The stowaways in question were two boa constrictors. Oh, holy Jesus shit. Right, okay, no, they're not. (laughs) That would have been me... Out of the docks and out of London in three seconds flat. I hate snakes. Each hate was over them. two metres long. Jesus Christ. And they had understandably caused the local dockhands to nearly shit themselves when they emerged slithering from the shadows. Oh, God. <laughs> I think I probably would. Yeah. I would. There'd be a little poo. There'd be no shame in that. There'd be no shame. <laughs> oh, my God. No. Throw my shoes at him. As the people of Britain, then as now, love a good gawp, there was soon a crowd gathered. We do love a gawp. To watch as the dockhands tried unsuccessfully to wrangle these massive snakes. Yeah, with none of the equipment to do it. I mean, at least if you live in, you know, say, Australia, South America, you'd, you'd, you'd have some kind of idea of, A, what to do. There'd be a guy. There'd be a guy. A you'd local call, guy. You'd call a guy and he'd have a, a stick with a hook on it and a bag. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know. And no sense of self-preservation. No self, you know, it would be the croc hunter, but for the Georgian era with snakes. Yeah. Well, if back then it would be the alligator fancier. Yes. But even though, you know, 
like you say, quite scary for the dock hands. Mm. For most Londoners, word was getting passed around because when were you going to get another chance to see these things? Well, yeah, that's true enough. And the crowd just got bigger and bigger Yeah. over the course of, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes as they kept trying to put these snakes, I'm guessing in a box. Just... Yeah, suitcase, empty suitcase, luggage container, Just, just anywhere. Crate. I mean, they're not, they're not poisonous, but the dock hands aren't to know that. You did say boa constrictor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they'll just squeeze you to death. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that's it. We put one of the dock hands in as bait. And as it starts <laughs> to wind itself around, the other dock hands go in there with hatchets. Could you not just throw a couple of pigeons in there? What, so you're just giving up the ship? You're like, they live there now. We're just going to feed them. <laughs> just throw, throw a couple of pigeons We're going to placate the boas by throwing local wildlife at them and hoping that they, they're happy with that. Well, what else have you got to throw in them from London? Rats. Oh, yeah, okay. I mean, this is the Georgian era, so I'm guessing there were lots of small dogs. Toy dogs. No, not the doggy wogs. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Just chuck a King Charles Spaniel at them. That'll keep them going for at least a month. Anyway, seeing the excitement in this massive crowd, yeah. George Woonwell suddenly had an idea and he made a very impulsive decision. Oh, my God. He offered to buy the snakes for 70 guineas which is around £8,500 in today money. So what we're saying is probably his savings. He decided on a random trip to the docks to spend his life savings on two snakes. Oh. Who would he pay for them? Well, I don't know. It said that he paid this. I couldn't find out anywhere. The man who, who owns he paid? the boat? I, I, I think that... The, the shipping company? It would be the merchant who bought the stock because they come as part of the stock. They've been yeah. packed. He paid for what had been packed on that ship, so I guess he'd have to have paid the merchant, who was probably relieved when George just walked up and went, can I take those two things off your hands? He's like, oh, God, yes. Please. Yeah. And then he's sort of offering him money. He's like, well, you're going to pay me for them? All right. £8,500, you say? Yes. Super duper. And the snakes had a home. They had a home with George. Can I just, on a very weird side note, if the microphones are picking up a kind of low rumble noise, the uh, search and rescue helicopter has just gone out over the bay. It is a very wet and stormy night here on the coast and uh, somebody's been a wazzock. Probably. Um, So, yeah, if you can hear that, it is the uh, search and rescue helicopter that's had to go out again. And if, as I'm listening to this and we can't hear it, I'll just cut that out, don't worry. Okay. We're covered either way. Uh-huh. Now you imagine that as he's walking back through Soho, one snake over one arm, one snake over the other, he raised a few eyebrows. <laughs> Just imagine he wore one as a belt and one as a scarf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But George Woonwell, yes. he had a plan to recoup his investment and then some. Okay. Every evening after work, he took his new pets around the pubs and taverns of London offering to let people see and handle them for the Lolo Fenny... Uh, the Lolo Fenny. <laughs> What's a Fenny? <laughs> it's a mix of fee and penny. <laughs> for the Lolo fee... Fenny. ...of a penny a time. <laughs> Quite like Fenny. <laughs> I like it. Mm. It's a great spoonerism. What this meant was that George would need to find... 17,640 customers in order to break even. Okay, so not the smartest move. No? You don't think? He managed it in three weeks. Shut the front door. There was that many people wanting to see his snake. Yeah, at the rate of approximately 840 paying punters every evening. People wanted to see those snakes. That's and crazy. Our local bloody park has tanks full of snakes and stuff like that for people to see now. Yeah, but you imagine you walk into a pub and everyone... A bloke sli- walks into yeah, a pub. With two snakes and everyone's slightly pissed. And he goes, <coughs> give a penny and I'll put it round your neck and you can hold it for a minute. And it'll just slightly choke you. Yeah, for a penny. People go, oh yeah, I'll hold the snake. Do the sno-. snakes have names? No, they're snake one and snake two. That's very, very, very sad. Don't, don't don't worry, he gets better with the naming thing. Mm. This success convinced George of the viability of a business exhibiting wild animals to the British public. 
I get this. In a pub, though, well, bringing the fun to you. That was it, only with the snakes. That was just a. That was testing the theory. That was his gambit, was it? Opening gambit. Mm. Oh, okay. Of course, his, his planning wasn't great at this point because what he did was he started regularly visiting the docks to ask if any of the ships just so happened to contain exotic creatures which might be for sale. Right. So he wasn't he wasn't ordering in animals. He was just going down the docks to see what he could find. <laughs> oh, God. It was, it was more successful than you'd think because over the next few years, George rapidly expanded his collection. See, I don't think this. I think on the docks, people got wind of a bloke who will give you good money if you can smuggle aboard your ship some random fucking animal from across the waters and he will pay you for them. Oh, yeah. No no questions asked. I think there may have been questions asked, you know, with the more exotic animals like, what the hell is it? Yeah. Okay. Someone turns up with a platypus. I'm thinking George is going to go, wait a minute, what was that? No. <laughs> I still look at a platypus and go, what the fuck's that? This <laughs> devil spawn of duck and beaver. <laughs> duck... <laughs> I heard this amazing thing. There's two college uh, football teams in America. Yeah. One are known as the Beavers. Yeah. The other is are known as the Ducks. Oh, my God. And when they play each other, they have a trophy to the winner that is a platypus. I love that. I love that. Yeah. I mean, just everything, every single thing about the platypus is just bizarre beyond. They are the weirdest, hands down the weirdest creature we have on the planet. Well, luckily for George, it didn't come up because as far as I know, he never owned a platypus. It's very disappointing again. That's two disappointments on the hoof there, Joe. But what we do know is that quite early on, he got, obviously got some animals that no respectable landlord would allow to just be wandered into a pub. Fair so, enough. Where is he keeping these? He's keeping them in his shoe shop. He just kept all of these animals in but his shoe shop. He's not going to keep something in a slipper and something in a sandal. Where, where, where's he keeping he's them? He's keeping them in the shoe shop. Oh, my God. And he started to just advertise that people could come to his shoe shop to view his collection. How would he know what to feed them? I don't think he was that far into the animal. He was just off giving them things until they ate it. And he was like, I'll do. Okay. But you can imagine the novelty. You go there, you pay. His shoe shop stink. Probably, but it's convenient. Imagine how easy it would be to take the kids to Clark's. If while you were busy so. getting the shoes sorted, they were over there playing oh, with an opossum. Yeah. You know, oh, or an I eye eye or something. Opossums. Yeah. Do you know what? The most the most upsetting thing about Clark's is they don't have the automated shoe sizer anymore. I know. It was like a futuristic wonderland. Mm-hmm. By 1810, George realised that the vast majority of his income was coming from people paying to see his animals rather than looking to buy new shoes. Yeah, I can't I can't help but feel like his heart really wasn't in shoemaking for very long. I mean, he he trained to do it as a child. He'd been doing it in his uh, home village and he mm. moved and spent four years. He probably spent a decade on shoes. Yeah, fair enough. You know, giving it a good crack, but he's like, why would I continue to make the shoes when no one's buying the shoes? They're paying to come in to mm. look at me animals. Yeah. And then they're sodding off. Mm. And I bet the shoes weren't staying nice in the shop. You've got a lot of animals probably that like to gnaw on things, and like chew I said, things. I, I just imagine his shop now absolutely pongs. Mm. Well, he decided he needed to get out of the shoe business and needed to get out of the shop because he was a good Georgian businessman and he was like, I'm, I'm going all in on this, maximum oh profit. Oh my God, he's going balls to the wall. So he sold the shop, mm-hmm. used the money to have a series of cages built had them mounted onto horse-drawn carriages and set off from London as Wombwell's Travelling Menagerie. Menagerie. Wombwell's Travelling Menagerie. Is uh, is he who we've got to thank for these horrible circuses in cages things that we see in France? He wasn't the first. And I do, I do think it is good at this point to address the issue of animal welfare in Georgian England. Right. Because travelling menageries, by their very nature were not able to provide anything like the amount of room that large wild animals need in order to remain healthy and happy. No. At the time that when Moonwell started his business, though, it was still over 20 years before the first zoo would be open to the public of the British Isles. Do you know which zoo was the first to open its doors to the public? Longleat. No. Technically a safari park as well. It was a safari park. Um, 
London Zoo? No. It was Dublin Zoo. Oh. In 1831. Technically, you're right, London Zoo did open in 1828, but it was only accessible by posh people who could demonstrate that they were engaged in some kind of scientific study. So it was only for the for the gentleman naturalist. Um, it wasn't for your, your paid public. Right, OK. The first public zoo in England would open in Bristol in 1836. Oh, right. Meaning that in the 1810s and 20s, Travelling shows were literally the only way for the vast majority of people to ever get an opportunity to see animals from other continents. Interesting. Unfortunately, instead of tailor-made habitats, the animals would be confined to small cages for long periods of time, mm-hmm. while being transported along the rutted tracks of England's terrible road network. Bounced around in all elements, probably none of which they'd in- encountered before, mm. on the back of a horse-drawn cart. And even when they arrived at a new venue, the proprietors focused on providing maximum value for money by ensuring that visitors could get as close as possible. Mm. As an advert for Pitcock's Menagerie in 1799 assures potential punters, (coughs) the large beasts are well secured so that the most timorous may approach them with greater safety. So they kind of chain them to the floor a little bit so that you could go up and give a a tiger a smack across the chops. Oh, it's beginning to aggravate me. Those large beasts uh, in Pidcock's menagerie included two mountain lions and a bloody great big Bengal tiger. Cat babies. Always the cat babies. And now it's made me cross. As a result of these less than perfect living conditions, the lifespan of animals in a menagerie was significantly shorter than it would have been in the wild. Mm -hmm. But... Proprietors like George Wimwell felt that they were providing a vital opportunity for the British people to see the natural wonders of the empire, instilling a sense of pride and wonder at nature. And after all, at that point, they all assumed that there were plenty more tigers that could be shipped over to replace the dead ones. There are probably millions of tigers, so we don't need to worry about if we just take one to show people. Well, it depends how many menageries there are, aren't there? Because it's one for you and one for you and one for you. There weren't that many. I mean, we're talking about a, a negligible amount, maybe a hundred yeah, menageries in total. Still sad tigers, though. Oh, it? very sad tigers. But what I'm saying is I don't think that people like George Wimwell were going out of their way to be cruel to these animals. They were saying, we want to show them to the, the general public. Mm, they were just being thoughtless British people. Yes, they were being thoughtless Brits rather than deliberately malicious Brits, I believe. Okay. However, mm. much like Tiger King proved over 200 years later, the easiest way to replenish your stock was to breed your own. Oh. And this was a feat that George Wombwell managed in 1816 when he became the first person to successfully breed a lion in Britain. A lion? A lion. At some point, he'd acquired a mummy lion and a daddy lion. And, and they he... love each other very much. They touched each other in a special way and a baby lion came out. Wow. He called the resultant cub William, after William Wallace, hero of Scottish law. Mm. William bucked the trend of animals having a shorter life expectancy in a menagerie, living and performing for 22 years. Jesus Christ. The average life expectancy in the wild for a lion is about 14. So mm. he, got an, he got almost a full extra decade. That's insane. <clears throat> it is. And I wonder if that's because he was bred into... Yeah captivity Mm -hmm. and he was you know used to that life it wouldn't have stressed him if it was all he knew and he was more um i don't want to say domesticated because i don't think you can domesticate a lion but he was (laughs) not fully (laughs) not not fully but as domesticated as a lion can get that was william yeah but despite being able to lay claim to the first captive bred lion george wombwell had entered a very competitive market there were multiple menageries crisscrossing the country right so more more cat babies yeah and other things they were always trying to get one up on each other to have something that the others didn't have uh, to provide an experience that the others weren't providing for the crossbreeding i'm waiting for the dabbling oh i'm waiting for it it's gonna happen we can't leave things alone yep Mm. well wound well he developed a particularly intense rivalry with a bloke called thomas atkins Mm. and i don't know why they particularly hated each other. It, it just kind of is mentioned in the books as a fully formed nemesis, you know. It's just like Milo with his nemesis at nursery. 
I have no idea what he did or why, but our boy was seething. Yeah, they... He was seething for about, <laughs> I don't know, about four hours after he came home. Poor We're going to have to bleep his name. Yeah. Please stop saying Oh dear. But yeah, these two just hated each other and it was almost like all the other menageries could just go and do their own thing. They wanted to be just the other guy. Mm. You know, it, it was a fight between just those two. Mm. They could be the worst two menageries in the country, but so long as Atkins was beating Wombwell or vice versa, they'd be happy with that level. Thomas saw the sensation caused by breeding a lion mm-hmm. on the British Isles. Mm. And he decided he would need to go one better. Mm. It took him nearly a decade, but in the October of 1825, Thomas Atkins announced that he had successfully bred a male lion with a female tiger to create a little litter of ligers. Little baby ligers. Mm. No other menagerie could claim to have one of these rare hybrid creatures, let alone a trio of them. Because it was a little litter of three. Their arrival brought people flocking to his menagerie for a look at the most unique creatures that were available to view at the time. They are very cute. I mean, they are complete freaks of nature and should never... Abominations genetically, really, and should never, ever, ever exist, ever. But bloody hell, they're cute. They're so fluffy. They are so fluffy. And if they get to adulthood, they are the biggest cats Yes. in existence. Mm. Ligers and tigons will grow bigger than, you know, a Siberian tiger. They will. Mm-hmm. They are huge cats. Mm-hmm. Even better, as they were cubs, Thomas Atkins could charge people extra to go into the pen with them and have a little play. <sighs> Would you be tempted, is the question. Probably at the time. I am so against zoos in general. They make my heart sink. Because all these amazing animals, it's just like, why have we ever, ever, ever touched them? Why are they ever here? How dare people poach them? And it brings my anger to a head and my blood boil. But if you'd been a late Georgian, early Victorian? Oh, with my love of cats, probably. You'd be right in there, wouldn't I, you? I would, I would be, because I, at the time, people didn't know any better. Well... One person who definitely wanted an opportunity to cuddle some baby ligers was King George the Fourth, who requested a special royal audience with the Ooh. hybrid animals. So it's great if you're the king, you can just go. Oh, I see you've you've done that thing. Right, come come to my house. Bring forth. Bring them to my house, but I, I have a schedule. Bring them to my house. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna have a play with the fluffy little smooshes, and then you can go on your way. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. It was fortunate that King George the Fourth requested this quickly, as all three of the cubs died within the year. Aww. Though this didn't put off Thomas Atkins, who continued to breed litters of ligers at least five more times over the next ten years, mm. though none of them ever made it past a year in age, because it was patently clear that Atkins had no idea how to look after them. Babies. Yep. See, that, that, that right there, that right there is just... I know. <sighs> Incidentally, the year the first litter was born, 1824, was the same year that the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals was founded, later given the royal um, moniker by Victoria. Mm. Unfortunately, the charity was still in its infancy the following year when George Wombwell came up with an idea to take the spotlight back from his rival Atkins. Oh, God, what's he going to bring? So he bred a lion, Atkins bred a liger, and he's like, what can I do? Tygon. Would they look much different? See, he he knows that it took Atkins ten years. He needs something that can happen now to bring the focus straight back to him. Okay, let me try and figure it out. Um, a kind of wolf dog. Give me three chances. Is it a wolfy kind of dog? A wolfy kind of dog is surely a wolf. Well, no, because you get the hybrid dog. Okay, not not that one. Is it a zebra horse? No. Is it a Zorse? No. I'm trying to think what else he'd do. Is it some kind of monkey? No. No. Go on then. He tried to breed a donkey with a walrus. What? No, that's a lie. Oh my God! (laughs) 
he wasn't breeding anything with anything. He's like, that looks like it takes way too much effort. What I'm going to do yeah. is I'm going to arrange to have one of my lions fight six dogs. That was his plan to get the focus back on him. Was to have no a lion guarantee that the lion would win. Oh, he was quite confident that his lion would win. His bred in captivity lion. Uh, not William. It was a different bred in captivity lion called Nero who got the gig. Mm. I'm not confident for this lion. You're not confident for the lion. No. Uh, would it help if I told you that the bulldogs that he's fighting six bulldogs I, I am with definitely. names including Rosie, Bluey, and Nettle. Because all the newspaper reports name all of the dogs and where they're from, which seems a bit oh don't don't humanize them. Okay, so I'm I'm guessing from the tone the dogs don't come out well. I don't think anyone's coming out of this situation well. No. <laughs> no. The event took place on July twenty sixth. I don't quite know. With, with the dawn of the RSPCA this happened uh this was only the year after they founded so this was a well it's the spca were only in their infancy they did protest that this was not on barbaric i think is the word well i mean at the time there was still you know you'd still been having cockfighting in recent history you'd still been having dog fighting there was still quite a bit you'd have um you know it doesn't make it right no i'm just saying that it wasn't it It, wasn't it it comes with the it comes with the age of the dehumanizer that sounds stupid the dehumanization of animals that doesn't make sense it it's just like the lack of understanding that this is a creature and you need to look after it you know what i mean It, it comes with that which makes me angry right well the event took place in warwick on July 26th, 1825. Mm. Uh, a special arena had been constructed in the factory yard of Salsford uh, and Woomwell had been advertising the event since the start of the year. So he'd gone all in about oh, trying to drum up interest. Seven months worth of drumming up an interest. Oh my God. So it should not have been surprising that a large crowd gathered. So large, in fact, that the press of bodies broke through one of the enclosure walls that had been erected. Oh Woomwell had to literally beat the punters back with a stick in order that the enclosure could be repaired. And this is a direct quote. <laughs> well enough for the fight to begin. Oh my God. If you're watching wild animal, it's essentially a wild animal fight, some dogs in a pen. You don't want that pen to have been put together well enough. You want them to have used words like robust. Yeah. And foolproof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And able to withstand a nuclear blast but to be honest anybody who would want to go and watch this as some kind of entertainment deserve everything deserves it yeah nero was brought to the arena in his cage and the gate on the front of the cage was lifted and then three of the dogs were let in at the other end of the makeshift arena to start the fight they were going to send them in in waves apparently how many dogs altogether six okay. so the first three have been sent in good good now sadly for fans of blood sports nero was a very docile lion. He was just a big pussy cat, really. We all are. And he refused to attack the dogs. Instead, he simply batted the dogs away with one of his massive paws whenever they tried to grab his nose. <laughs> so they came at his face and he just went, stop that. No. Mm. Go away. Although he wasn't really trying, Nero's blows were powerful enough that one of the dogs died of its wounds. Okay. Because even in play... Yeah, there must be big kitties. Yeah, and the claws were out. And this dog just kept, apparently... It was the one... The first two dogs had had a go, got hit by the paws and went, nope, nope. They kind of backed (laughs) off. And this third dog, maybe a bit brain damaged from Mm. previous dog fights, just Mm. kept running, getting smashed across the arena, getting up, shaking itself off and running back. And just slap, slap, slap. Woomwell obviously felt that his event had not lived up to the billing. So he staged another fight four days later, only this time he put Wallace in the den rather than Nero. Not William. Yeah, well, much like his namesake, he was much more aggressive. He liked to be on the attack. uh, And he killed several of the dogs. So if you ever ask the hypothetical, what would win in a fight? A pack of dogs or a lion? It's... Well, the pack of dogs we've established needs to be more than six. It needs to be more than six and not your average bulldog. Yeah. You, you'd probably be looking at a, a bigger, more a more aggressive dog. More wild. Yeah. Well, 
I would assume, towards the wilder side. You know, you wouldn't send a poodle in. Scientifically, what we need to do is we need to get a lion. No, and we, we need don't. to get <laughs> we need to get six dogs of various breeds working up the scale. So starting off with like a pug. Six pugs, throw them in, see what happens, and then just work your way up until eventually you reach the point at which the dogs are able to hold their own. Jesus Christ. I'm thinking six German Shepherds, maybe? Bull Mastiff? Yeah, possibly. You know, six Doberman, I think, would have a good shot. It's somewhere in that range, I think, is where you'd reach parity. Yeah. Where it'd at least be a fair fight. I mean, the whole thing is, is kind of turned and curdled my stomach a little bit. Thought exercises you don't want to participate in. No, not really, not really. (laughs) These events, the two fights, were reported in the national press, much to the disgust of a portion of the public who condemned Wombwell as a cruel and heartless man. Yeah, he is, he's a twat. It is true that following the dozens of scathing editorials, he did not arrange any further animal fights, but that's not to say that the event backfired, because any publicity is good publicity. It has been said. I'm not. I'm, I don't completely agree with that, but it has been said. Wimwell lent into the notoriety uh-huh. um, and started advertising his show at the Bartholomew Fair in London that year with the headline, "Come see Nero and Wallace, the same lions that fought at Warwick." <sighs> Hordes of people decided to pay their money in order to do just that, and Atkins must have watched on, livid that the negative publicity had actually led to increased revenues for Woonwell and his menagerie. I'm a bit annoyed. Yeah? Yeah. You're feeling like there needs to be some kind of... Um, I hope a lion eats his face off. I was going to say natural justice, but yeah, same, yeah. same difference. In fact, at first, it didn't seem to matter what happened to Woonwell, what supposed ill luck he experienced. He always seemed able to turn the situation to his advantage. Oh, I hate them people. As an example, in 1836, Woonwell was not planning to exhibit at the Bartholomew Fair that year. Mm. <clears throat> he had some other engagements booked in. So I'll just give it a skip this year. However, when he heard that Atkins was, he changed his plans at the last minute and rushed to London. Mm. The breakneck journey proved to be too much for his elephant, which sadly died en route. <sighs> Upon hearing this news, Atkins decided to poke fun at Woonwell by creating a large sign outside of his exhibit that said, The only live elephant at the fair. Right. Woonwell responded by making his own sign, which proclaimed that he had the only dead elephant at the fair. (laughs) The public decided that they would much rather pay to go and have a good old poke at the dead (laughs) elephant... Because elephants are one of those things that every menagerie had. Ooh, people are awful. <laughs> but, you Just know... Just awful. Generally, you're not allowed to pick up a stick and poke the elephants, so this was an opportunity that you would never get again. And Woonwell ended up making more money from his dead elephant than Atkins did from his live one. <laughs> I mean, you shouldn't laugh, but good God, aren't people awful? Well, I think this is what Woonwell knew. He's like, oh, people. Well, think about it. His first experience of the sort of world of exotic animals was a load of Londoners rushing down the docks because they believed that they were going to see some scared men get eaten by snakes. And he's like, people are trash. Yeah, they're attracted to the worst of things. I can capitalize on that. People are the fucking worst. Yeah, and he's just playing on that. Oh. I still haven't forgiven him for the lions, though. Mm. Well, although Woonwell could not put any other animals in harm's way with his big cats anymore due to the sterling work of the SPCA in changing public attitudes, Mm -hmm. Woonwell realised that he could recreate the sense of danger by instead putting live humans in the cages, specifically young women, Mm. preferably named Ellen. Why specifically Ellen? It's just how it shook out. The first Ellen to be given the title of the British Lion Queen was Ellen Chapman. Right. She was the daughter of Harry Chapman, who'd worked with the travelling menagerie running a peep show. Oh, a perv. The daughter of a perv. Woonwell's all about, you know, the lowest common denominator. They've got money to spend too. (laughs) 
He's the lowest common denominator. Harry, he's come just and... facilitating <laughs> other low specimens. Go on. Do you have any serviceable skills, Harry? I've got mucky books. Brilliant. We'll, we'll charge him two bits of gander. Come on, lad. Can I bring my daughter along? No, okay. Ellen was barely in her teens when she was convinced to become a lion tamer. Jesus Christ. She performed with the big cats several times every day and is widely reported to be the first woman to put her head inside of a lion's mouth as part of the show. I'm running out of words. (laughs) (laughs) I'm literally running out of words. By the age of 16... It's like the thing of horror film. By the age of 16, so she's not even of legal age when she's doing this. She's not old enough to vote. She's not old enough to have sex. She's not old enough to drink. you mean old enough to vote? Women wouldn't vote then. No, I'm talking about today. You're talking about someone who wouldn't be old enough to vote, wouldn't have been old enough to have sex, wouldn't have been old enough to drink, wouldn't have been old enough to do anything, really. But apparently, that's the time at which you want to chuck them in with massive apex predators. What do you think abused women do? They they do what they're told, unfortunately. And there's nothing to say she was abused. You're, make, you're casting aspersions on her dad just because he runs a mucky stall doesn't mean that he necessarily on what planet would you not class making your daughter stick your head in a lion's mouth i don't four times a I don't, day i don't know that she was forced she said she quite enjoyed doing it and by the age of 16 she got so good at doing it had ellen chapman that she was performing for queen victoria herself she got a royal audience right this was one of five invitations Woomwell received over the years to provide a private exhibition for the royals. Mm. The Queen was so impressed with Ellen that she gave her a gold watch and chain in recognition of her bravery. This is the same Victoria who had just patronised the RSPCA. <laughs> yes, we need to look after all of those animals. Now stick your head in its jaws again. I like that bit. Yeah, well... It Royalty is, is not all of what it seems on the outside, is it? We all know that. It is reported that Ellen's shows were making up to 100 quid a day for Woomwell, of which she ended up keeping very little. I bet she did. Mm. You know, she, that's abuse. She received a flat fee. Financial abuse. Unfortunately for Woomwell, during the course of one of the many fairs he was exhibiting at in 1849, Ellen met a rival showman called George Sanger. Mm-hmm. He he styled himself Lord George Sanger. Mm. However, he had not been ennobled. It was a self self given title. <laughs> self given. I am a lord. Are he, you? I could be. He was young. He was handsome, and he was the successful proprietor of ten circuses. Mm. Ellen abruptly decided to jump ship, and Woomwell was left without a lion queen for his shows. Oh dear! What a shame. Ellen later married George Sanger on December 1st, 1850, and will continue her career with the Sanger's circuses. Though you imagine it was far more profitable for her, seeing as how she was married to the owner. She had a bit more leeway over terms and conditions. Terms and conditions and... Yeah, I mean, once you're married to the owner, it's probably a bit better. Mm-hmm. She she um, continued to perform with the wild animals, and she she enjoyed it. And she she lived she lived quite old as well. She she got a, a ripe old life, and she was still doing the snake dance well into her later years. Jesus Christ! I'm I'm hoping in the unitard that she'd been doing it in when she was sixteen. She's still wearing it at sixty eight, dusting off the sequins. Yeah. I'm beautiful. Yes, you are, Ellen. Fantastic, fantastic lion queen. Poor woman. Go on. George Woomwell, though he would not be present at the wedding as from the point Ellen Chapman left him in mid-1849, his luck would abandon him in the most spectacular way possible. Please tell me he was eaten by a lion. I'd love that. Almost immediately after losing his lion queen to a rival, Woomwell was also hit with a very personal tragedy. His nephew, William Woomwell, which is easy to say, mm. Willie Woomwell, mm. was working with him as the keeper of the lion's when the travelling show arrived in Coventry on June 12th, 1849. Mm-hmm. William had just finished helping to set up the exhibits and was scraping the mud off his shoes with a knife, as you do. As you do. When he heard two male bull elephants start fighting. 
Right. You just leave them to it. Yes. But despite this representing two and a half tonnes of angry elephant. <laughs> Each a piece, probably. I, I combine them. <laughs> it's a combined two and a half tonnes oh, of God. anger and aggression. Wow. And despite William not being an elephant keeper. Right. And despite William having suffered a severe injury at the hands of one of his lions almost a year ago to the day. Right, you know what? These people deserve everything that's coming to them. And I mean that with every fibre of my being. Well, despite all of those things, he decided that he would go into the pen Mm -hmm. to break the two elephants up by giving them a little poke with his knife. Bear in mind this is a small flick knife to show them who's in charge. I can't wait. I, I can't wait till he's mauled to death. Come I'll on. go in there. I'll give him a poke in the back of the knee. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. And they'll for him they'll to back die. off because I'll I'll have shown I'm the alpha in this situation. William Woomwell, twenty five year old William Woomwell, who you imagine Not is, you know, he's been living the the life of a travelling um, menagerie assistant. He's probably not well nourished. I I I literally I can't wait. Tell he's me, gone in. Yeah, tell me he's dead. Well, his plan didn't it didn't work out the way William had envisaged. Was he stabbed with a tusk? Was it gory and wonderful? One of the elephants, for starters, immediately snatched the knife from his hand Yes. and crushed it to pieces in front of him. Super. What happened next? George Woonwell heard his nephew's cries of pain and came to the pen just in time to describe the scene. <clears throat> this is part of the coroner's report. The elephant had got him up in the corner of the den and was boring at him with its tusks. (laughs) I cried out immediately, For God's sake, come, for he is killing William! The young man and I got a ladder, which had spikes at the bottom, put it into the den and poked the elephant with it so as to get him away. From the time William went into the den till we got him away, it was not more than three minutes. He could just walk out, but I saw he was bleeding very much and we were obliged to carry him immediately. That elephant is usually a very quiet and tractable creature and walked last year in the procession at Coventry. Yeah, so he'd been gored. Yay! By an elephant that specifically, one of its tusks had been broken during a previous fight and was particularly sharp. Again, I I couldn't give a shit. More power to the elephant, he'd had enough. Mm. And al- although William had managed to walk out, it quickly became clear that the elephant had managed to use its sort of extra sharp half tusk mm. to stab through his thigh, severing the femoral artery. Mm. And William Woonwell bled to death in the arms of his uncle. He was only 25 and he left behind a wife and uh, child. Look, that, that bit of the story is sad because death is never nice. Nope. But what goes around comes around. You leave wildlife the fuck alone. You don't pen it in. You don't try and poke it with a fucking knife. You don't think, well, I'm 25 years old and I know everything. I'm going to go into this cage and see. (laughs) Yeah, well, look what happened. Look what happened. You'd have had an Essex accent, actually. I'm not doing an Essex. I'm not doing Essex. Now, very sad. Apparently not heeding this cautionary tale about the folly of putting relatives in harm's way Mm. and determined to continue with his profitable Lion Queen shows, especially now he had to deal with the bad publicity of, you know, his nephew being gored to death by an elephant. Mm. Woonwell turned to his own 16-year-old niece, Ellen Blight. Another Ellen. She performed the show for the paying public for six months without incident. (laughs) That's... It's a very dark cloud being cast over this story. Then, yeah, <laughs> there was an incident uh, on the evening of was Jan- it fatal <laughs> on the evening of January the eleventh, eighteen fifty, following a performance in Chatham, a group of army officers appro- approached Blight and asked if she wouldn't mind putting on the show again for them, as they had not wanted to miss seeing her, but had been unavoidably delayed, and these were. Young, dashing officers really with not. fine moustaches and many medals upon their chests. Mm. And I think, you know, Ellen's 16. She's imagining that one of them might take a shine to her and take her away from this life of, you know, performing with wild animals. So she feel... she readily agreed. She was like, yeah, OK, I'll, I'll do it one more time for you guys. A private showing. I, I do feel and 
you know, I may be wrong, mm. that although we've covered many a capable woman mm. in our podcast and... And we will cover more. And we'll cover more. And I think that each and every one of them have have been fantastic. I'm not getting the same capable and completely in control vibe from these women. I think they've been coerced into having to perform because, oh, well, you're of a certain age now, so you need to help the family business. So this is what you're going to do, isn't it? And if it ends fatally for her, then her blood is on their hands. Not in the same way as the guy who wanted to poke an elephant with a flick knife. (laughs) That is completely of his own making. I mean, there is definite... I mean, definitely, it comes back to Woonwell. If he hadn't have decided to go away from his shoe business, which was turning a fine profit, he was doing well to do this, then... His nephew definitely wouldn't have died. No. And Ellen wouldn't have been placed in this position where she was um, deciding whether or not to redo the show immediately after just completing a show. Yeah, you're going to piss them lions the fuck off because if I know anything about cats and I have had my beloved Esme, my tiny lion, if you will, for 13 and a half years now, they love a routine. Mm. If they know what they're doing and when they're going to do it... They are happy if you die if you deviate from the plan. They kick off like that time when we went away, and my mum and dad brought the kids back before we got home, and Thursday had a hissy fit, mm. like to the point where she was borderline vicious because it wasn't us that walked through the door; it was my mum and dad. And then the minute we walked through the door, she was like, "Ah, there we go." Everything is restored. We are fine. We are on with the plan. Cats like a plan. So I can just... I I know that this is going to go bad. The male will now change my litter box. Yes. Beardy male. Beardy male will take (laughs) the poo. I I know not where. (laughs) Away from my litter box. Blondie lady will feed me and pet me and stroke my fur. And all is restored. (laughs) Well, like, like I say... Ellen, she was happy, very happy to put on a special extra performance for these officers. But as she entered the cage... Naive, naive woman. As she entered the cage, one of the tigers, it was making it quite clear that it was not happy with this plan. No, because the plan was deviated from. I'm I'm telling you now, she made a kitty rookie mistake right there. That's Kitty rookie mistake, the one, going back into the cage and seeing that the tiger's a bit pissed and going, nah, don't worry about it, we'll carry on. We'll just push through. The second error, shall we say... Kitty rookie mistake, the second. The second was upon seeing that this tiger was upset, Mm. visibly upset, which I I imagine is sort of, you know, sort of rearing up and and snarling at her. I was going to say, making the noise. Yeah. (laughs) She responded by hitting it across the nose with a whip. Oh, wow. The officers said that this appeared to make the tiger settle down. Oh, no, no. That that tiger is now seething. That tiger is now biding its time. It's biding its time. It is seething. Yep. Yeah. But Ellen, her routine started with the lions. And the lions, by this point, I'm assuming they're all captive bred lions. Mm, yeah, probably. Yeah. So, you know, so they were quite happy to go through it again. It was a bit more playtime for them. They were happy. They were doing their thing. Yeah, they were probably very inbred. Yeah. And Ellen was starting to forget all about the very pissed off tiger that was sitting there in the corner. Flicking its claw mm. and then retracting. And then flicking its claw and then retracting. Just, you know, kind of like almost sharpening its knife kind of action. Ting! But having finished. Ting! Having finished the performance with the Lions, no. having received the applause of the, the officers, for reasons best known to herself... <laughs> because she's 16 and thinks she knows it all, but has no life experience and she is in fact a child. Oh, she definitely has no life experience. Um, she decided to turn round and hit the tiger again. I would imagine she's probably egged on to do that. She might not have been, mm. but... Yeah. Well, it proved to be too many kitty errors because <laughs> oh, three strikes and you're out <laughs> what happened next <laughs> was described by the coroner again thusly okay 
The tiger reared up on its hind legs and held her furiously by the neck, inserting the teeth of the upper jaw into her chin and closing his mouth, inflicting frightful injury in the throat by his fangs. Yeah, he ripped his, th- he ripped his throat out. That's well, what tigers do. He didn't quite get to the throat rippy out stage because Ellen was still alive when she was retrieved from the cage. But the officers were unable to get her to swallow any restorative brandy. Because, <laughs> because, because it just came back out of the hole. That was their go-to. They were like, this, this woman's breathing. Get her some brandy, for God's sake. We must save her life. Just, do, we, do we pour it in the mouth or do we pour it in the neck hole? Pour it in both. <laughs> One's pouring out the other. She's like a sieve. But wherever they poured it, it wasn't going down to the stomach where it obviously would have saved her life. Yeah, that would have uh, done And it. she died shortly afterwards. Blunt force trauma, yeah, probably. Now, you might expect these two deaths have occurred within six months of each other. Yeah. You might have thought that Woonwell might have felt a sense of responsibility for his nope. niece's death. No, I bet he didn't. Because he's flown too close to the sun now and he thinks he's untouchable. It's the MP thing. You know when they... <laughs> How have you brought politics into this? <laughs> you, you know when they get too big for the boots and they think they're untouchable and then they go and, you know, openly shag somebody that they shouldn't go and shag or, I don't know, some poor bloke ends up drowned mm. in a swimming pool or something like that. It, it's It's getting that vibe. Yeah, he did start to go a bit weird. At one point he was talking about making hygers and hyens, which were just human-lion and human-tiger hybrids. You are joking. Of course I am. He didn't go around and start <laughs> nobbing the animals. I wouldn't be surprised. Would, would you not? At no. Point, he's dehumanised himself to the point where to he's the just... Point- Anything for profit. Imagine if I made a half-tiger hybrid that could walk on its hind legs and say hello. See? (laughs) I can imagine it. A tiger that can cobble shoes. (laughs) This is it. Bringing it full circle. Yeah. Well, he may have felt some guilt. No, he didn't. He He might have done. No. Not a pang. Not a flutter. But that was tempered by his desire to be a businessman. Oh, I see. And a man of business. He's a Tory. Once again, he capitalised on the sensational reporting of his own niece's death. It's vile. (laughs) By exhibiting the tiger from that point on in a separate cage as the animal that killed the Lion Queen. Oh my God. Fun side note. (sighs) Ellen Blight and William Woonwell share a grave in Coventry Cemetery. So he wouldn't even spring for individual graves for them. He just piled his dead niece on top of his dead nephew. <laughs> that, See, I imagine, I imagine now that their grave has a tiger on one side and an elephant on the other, just to add insult to injury, because then he could charge people to go and look at the grave I don't of think... the elephant man and the tiger queen. It's funny that you should mention animals on top of tombstones. Because <laughs> he is fucking vile, honestly. It would not surprise me. As for George Woonwell. I hope he I hope he died a horrible death, alone and sad and penniless. No, because he died less than a year after his niece, on November 16th, 1850. Good. He was buried in a coffin made from the decking, salvaged from the ship, the Royal George, which, upon its completion in 1756, had been the largest warship in the world. He had received the planks from this warship from Prince Albert, in payment for providing veterinary services to his dogs. So he'd looked after Prince Albert's dogs, and Prince Albert had said, thank you. They weren't the dogs that went in with the lion then? No, these were royal dogs. You don't put them in with lions. But Prince Albert had said, you can have anything you want. And George Woonwell had said, I'd like some decking from that ship that's just been salvaged. Do you know what he he was planning to do? I couldn't give a shit. He's really annoyed me. Well, the coffin wasn't made after his death out of these planks that he had. He had it made into a coffin immediately and he exhibited it as part of his show as the coffin that he would be placed in that people could pay to see. So he'd been carting his own coffin around for a number of years. As part of you can pay to see my coffin. Levels too low for this man. (laughs) There is no level to which he will not sink. Yeah, he's the person who. He's he's the unsinkable man. (laughs) 
fucking hell. He is a submarine of a person. He's a submarine. What is oh. it, the Marianas Trench <laughs> of a person? Just, and he's just keeping going to the fucking Earth's core. Just keep going, you fucking low life. God's sake. I, I think it's brilliant because what it what it proves is he was just the most pure form of a capitalist. He would do oh. anything to make money. Any situation that happened, his first thought wasn't, is this right? Is this ethical? Have I made a mistake? It was, how can I monetize this? How can I turn even greater profit out of this? Do you know what? He's Del Boy if Del Boy didn't have a heart. Well, he's That's he's sociopathic he Del Boy. He's sociopathic Del Boy. That is exactly what he is. Del Boy without a soul. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what? What? That... How do we? How do we explain Del Boy to somebody who's not in the UK? We tell them to go and watch Only Fools and Horses. Of course, go, go now, run, don't walk, because it's one of my favourites. <laughs> well, you could listen to the end of the episode, then run. Yeah. If you want to go and pay your respects no. to this businessman, this visionary, this man who will profit from any disaster. Do you know what? I now know what you should do with Thursday's shit. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you want to go and see him for whatever reason, mm. he is buried in Highgate Cemetery in London. Is he? He is. The wazzock. If you want to find his grave, it's quite easy. It is the one that is underneath a life-size statue of the Lion Nero. Fucking knew it. Not too far away from the grave of Karl Marx. Fucks. Who you have to assume would have hated him. There's <laughs> something me and Karl Marx have in common because he's not endeared himself to me in the slightest. Oh, I'm riled. <laughs> I'm fucking riled. And that is the story of George Woomwell. Oh. Georgian slash Victorian displayer of animals. Wow. A true product of his time. Now, I'm actually, I'm actually thinking, like... Is it worth taking a load of cat shit to, <laughs> to London and flinging it at the grave of somebody? You've got that in a Tupperware. People are going to give you <laughs> very odd looks on the train. Not on the tube. People don't look at you. It's fine. You can get away with anything on the tube. You could probably just hold a severed head as long in as your you, lap. As long as you get past Birmingham, nobody would question you. Because mm. people past Birmingham don't speak to you. That's what we've learned. It's fine. But no, I'm, I am actually thinking, is it worth it? It might be. So you're not a fan of Wormwell? No. That was that was going to be our uh, New Year's episode, that one. <laughs> it's going to help people ring in the new year with a sense of positivity. I, I think I'm glad I missed a week, to be honest. Yeah, did you, did you need the extra time to recover before yeah. hearing a tale like that? Yeah, definitely. So there you go. Have we got a source this week? Um... We have various sources. Oh, is it a multiple source? Yes, there were a few journal articles that were talking specifically about the phenomena of the menagerie mm. um, and what, what cultural impact it had. I'm so glad we don't do anything like that anymore. Mm. I'm so glad that the anything thing... anything surrounding like animal welfare and, and stuff now is, is a lot more closely regulated. As much as I don't like zoos, we have taken the kids to some. Um I do pick them very, very carefully. We have been to Longleat. Um, we've also been to the... Where do we go? Cotswold. The Cotswold Wildlife Park. That's excellent. And then the other one that was um, down near Epping Forest that we went to. Oh, yeah, that was nice. That was amazing because the conservation there is absolutely top-notch. Well, that's the thing. When you when you sort of look at um, other people, like, I mean, even look at David Attenborough. Mm. You know, when he started doing his show versus where he is now. Oh, I know. He'd look back at young David Attenborough and go, geez, that was a bad thing to do. Yeah. You know, there's that, well, I didn't know any better, but he'd also acknowledge that. You feel like throughout his entire life, George Woomwell learned nothing. He didn't. He, and, he, and do you know what I also feel, which is why, like, you know, flinging the cat shit at him might be beneficial just to get out my anger um is that i i think he doubled down like at every turn he didn't think maybe what i'm doing is is a bit shit he just doubled down and it's just like make the money 
Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week. I'm thinking of just uh, splicing together all the coughs (laughs) and just putting them at the end. Rather than cut and delete, I'm just going to drag them down to a cough track and then I'm just going to put it all at the end. (laughs) 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 I'm going to have to do that again. Yeah.